Uh, today we are in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a, uh, one of the Old Testament minor prophets following the book of Habakkuk in our Bible. Um, and we know that during these, um, during these times in the minor prophets, uh, we've got a few more weeks until we finish up the Old Testament. Uh, the minor prophets uh, do complete the Old Testament in our, in our scriptures. And we know that each of them are very different. Uh, they live in a different time. They have different, uh, we, have, we know different information about them. There's some we know nothing about. There's some we know lots about. There's some we know when they spoke. There's some we don't know when they spoke exactly. And so we have some ideas based on the context clues. But ultimately, um, we come to this one here in Zephaniah. And this is, uh, and I know every week, this is one of my favorites, okay? <laughs> but the more I study it, the more I love this book uh, for a few reasons. There's three chapters in Zephaniah. We know a lot about this prophet. This prophet is who I consider, uh, which I've kind of titled his book, The Royal Prophet. Uh, not because he was a king, but because he was in the bloodline of David. So he was the great-great-grandson of the godly king Hezekiah. Uh, and we know that from the first verse of this book. Uh, we know that he is uh, uh, the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. And uh, so he has a, um, his pedigree is given more than the rest of the minor prophets. So we know more about where he came from, who he was, uh, because of his, uh, his lineage um, than, than the other prophets. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know exactly why, but I know it's important because it's in the Bible. I've, I've learned this. If the Bible doesn't say it, probably not important. If the Bible does say it, it is important. So we're going we're gonna to just hang our hats on that this is important. Now, I think it's, it's, it's good for us to know um, when he, uh, we also know when he prophesied. He prophesied during the reign of King Josiah in Judah. And so King Josiah, if you remember, he was the last of the godly kings in the nation of Judah before they ended up in, uh, in captivity. And so his, uh, uh, his reign was... Now, Josiah, if you remember much about Josiah, uh, whenever we talked about in the, in the Chronicles, Kings and Chronicles, um, Josiah's reign was one that came right after a guy named Manasseh and Ammon. Uh, Manasseh it was the worst king in all of Judah. It, that was Hezekiah's son, if you remember. Um, Manasseh was the... Um, I mean, just the worst of the worst. Uh, he he led Israel, uh, led Judah into uh, far away from their spiritual health. Like he took them, uh, their, the worst spiritual condition they had been in. Uh, he had done terrible, awful things, vile, corrupt, uh, from from things that were happening in the government, things that were happening on the streets, just vile and awful. Uh, the the one that followed him, Ammon, uh, didn't do any better. Uh, he was as nearly as bad. And uh, just so Judah kept slipping further and further and further away from where God's people needed to be. So when Josiah comes in, now Josiah, if you remember, ended up getting killed by the Egyptians uh, sort of early. So his stint didn't last very long. But Josiah was one that came in and said, OK, we're going to we're going to clean up. We're going to clean house. We're going to make sure that we go back to God. That's what he wanted. Now, his efforts, even though he tried so hard, uh, were just they were too little too late. And we also know this. So Josiah came in, and, and I, I learned a lot about Josiah whenever we were going through a couple months ago in our revival series, because Josiah craved revival. He wanted revival. But one of the things that I've learned, and that he learned, and that we learned through Scripture, you cannot produce revival. You can't. 
that it's a God thing. So really what Josiah did was cause a bunch of reforms. So he caused us to go back to uh, doing the right festivals, doing the right things, following the right uh, statutes and the laws. He was very focused on the lo- back to the laws of Moses and um, tried to get the people to turn back to that. But they were basically national reforms, and they didn't change the heart of the people. Revival changes the heart of the people. Now, a lot of those reforms that were put in place, I believe, had to be in part because of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, that means Josiah and Zephaniah were related, right? They were both of the bloodline of David. Now, Zephaniah was not the king. He was not in, but he was related to the king. So that tells, now it's distantly related, uh, probably, you know, second, third cousin type situation. Um, But as as I think about Zephaniah, he probably had the ear of his relative and probably spoke a lot into Josiah because Josiah wanted to do good. Zephaniah was obviously a guy that loved the Lord, that the Lord was going to use. But here's what I think is interesting. When I began to study this book from this survey perspective, I realized something. If, if all that was really happening, okay, so if Josiah was in and he wanted revival, so he changed and did all these reforms, the one that had to be, and I'm just assuming, I'm making the assumption that Zephaniah probably spoke into that because he was a, a prophet of God uh, and and who else would you go to if you're trying to have national reform or national revival than the, the people that are speaking for God? And I realized something. In Zephaniah's book, he doesn't mention the king's reforms. Doesn't even mention it. So why not, right? You would think a prophet would say, you know, because of what's going on in this, in this culture, because a lot of other prophets would talk about, you know, when you turn your face back to the Lord in this way or in this, this situation. But Zephaniah had to be close to the king, Josiah, and yet we don't hear anything about what King Josiah had put in place. And I think some of that has to do with uh, Zephaniah's prophecy has kind of a two-view look. Like a lot of the other prophets, he sees the, uh, the, the coming issues, and then he sees Christ, right? And he keeps pointing to the end, the day of the Lord. Uh, what we'll hear is a lot of the day of the Lord, um, and which kind of picks up from, if you remember our study of the book of Joel, Joel was a guy who said, who the, the day of the Lord, day of the Lord, day of the Lord, he said it so many times. Um, so we hear that in this book. Now, I think it's, it's also interesting where it's placed in our Bible. Uh, it's placed after the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk um, was a, uh, had a little bit different uh, heart behind his reading, uh, but again, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, there was a, a, a lot, again, a lot going on here. So if we think about the time, we have, uh, you know, Manasseh had come in and then Ammon came in, vile, corrupt, it just kept slipping away. So the people of the day, which this is going to be interesting for us at the very, very end, because the people of that day had slipped and slipped and slipped further out of God's, uh, God's uh, relationship with them. So they had slipped further and further away, rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And so um, the spiritual condition was at an all-time low. Josiah comes in, tries to manufacture a revival by putting in the right reforms. And I think they were good reforms. I think they were needed. I'm not saying Josiah did something wrong by trying his best at his, in his position, at his level, to help as many people as possible to, you know, if, it's kind of one of those things um, that if you, uh, if you set, if you, if, you just, if you just help point people in the right direction, you can't make them walk, right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink kind of situation. Uh, Josiah was trying to lead all the horses to water because they were thirsty. But they just, they got there and they, they didn't want to drink anything. They didn't want to do this. They weren't, they weren't in for it. So he did his best to point people in the right direction, which I think is a great thing. 
Zephaniah, he gets to this point in his, his heart, in his life, where he is a, um, uh, he, he, his prophecy really is just proclaiming this punishment that's coming. Doesn't talk much about what's going on nationally in the moment. So if you've got a couple of different um, prophets that we look at, um, his time is, is uh, important to us. Nahum, if you remember, when we talked about him, uh, he was already dead and gone at this point. Uh, Nineveh was about to fall. So the city of Nineveh in the Assyrians, uh, Babylon was about to take over. So this is important to know and realize the time frame he's sitting in. So if Nineveh is about to fall, Nahum's gone. Um, and then uh, you've got Habakkuk is just about on the scene. So Habakkuk's not quite here yet. Um, they, they, there's a little bit of a, a time that's it's real close. The ten tribes of the north are already captured. They're in captivity. The Assyrians already have a hold of them. And so, uh, jo- so then Josiah comes on and, and Zephaniah comes on. Habakkuk, if you remember in our study of him uh, and his, his book, uh, he really had a problem in his own mind to kind of rectify and solve, right? He was like, I don't understand how God can do this. This doesn't make sense to me. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my face, this is Habakkuk 2, I'm going to set my, my direction to the Lord, I'm going to watch him. So his book was really about how he was dealing with um, how, how the Lord was going to work. You had uh, Nahum, who, who just had, he, his whole focus was a city was about to fall, right? Nineveh is going to fall. That's what's going to happen. And then Zephaniah, we get to this book, and he just talks a lot about the day of the Lord in here. He talks a lot about there's a punishment coming and then the day of the Lord. So here's, here's what I'd like to think about. So Habakkuk and Nahum were both about uh, what's happening today. Now, there's always tones about the end times, always. You can find through the prophets. But what we see is their focus was the, the international chaos going on, right? So you had Habakkuk saying, there's no way this is going to happen to us. How, is this, how are you going to use these people to defeat us? You had Nahum saying, these people are going to end up taking over Nineveh. And everybody's like, there's no way. Nineveh is the strongest city ever. This is, this, it's not even possible. And so he's looking at the international stage, chaos coming shortly. And then Zephaniah almost, almost glasses over some of that into the day of the Lord when he's talking about what God's going to do he's, when he pours out his wrath. And so there's a little bit of a difference. Now, Zephaniah does talk a lot about how, uh, specifically how Jerusalem's going to fall. In fact, Zephaniah is the, gives us the most detailed description of how Jerusalem's going to fall. More detailed than Jeremiah, more detailed than Isaiah, more detailed than all those guys. And so he is a, a contemporary of Jeremiah, which is an important thing to know uh, if you know a lot about the history of the way this all uh, plays out. Uh, but he is a, uh, he's a guy that picks up that theme of the day of the Lord. And so we're going to look at this book today in the three parts. It's not going to be chapter, chapter, chapter. There are three chapters, but the first part, I want to look in just the first six verses. And then uh, the second part is kind of the big chunk, uh, which goes from uh, chapter one, verse seven, all the way to chapter three, verse eight. And then we're going to end up at the last part of chapter 3. So look at these three parts. Uh, The first one is um, I'm calling uh, judgment today. And so this is when he sees what's happening right in front of him. Uh, Verse number 1, let's going to jump in. Uh, It it gives the the pedigree of Zephaniah. It gives uh, where he's from, who uh, uh, who he is related to, and how he is the uh, great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. Um, And then he is the, uh, uh, he's, and it tells when he serves, right? So he serves during the reign of Josiah, who was uh, there in Judah. So he tells us who he is, where he's from, uh, his bloodline, and who's on the throne currently, which is 
Incredible. I love when we get a lot of that description because then we can understand a little bit more about the landscape that's going on around us so we can see the book for, uh, in, in every light we can see it in. Verses 2 to 6, he talks about what he hears. Um, he is, is basically saying in these verses, uh, in this, the early part of his prophecy, judgment is coming on Judah now. You know, we, we have these other prophets that have, you know, talked about Nineveh or talked about um, the different cities, the different places, the different judgments that have come. The ten tribes are already in captivity. And so Zephaniah begins with Judah is going to be uh, overtaken. And here's what we will learn in the book of Zephaniah. I was reading um, some commentaries on this book over the last couple of weeks. And uh, one, one commentator said that there is not a hotter book in all the Old Testament than Zephaniah. This is the hottest book. And, and what he means by that is when you start reading this, he talks about, I mean, just some intense, vivid pictures about, he talks about fire, he talks about smoke, he talks about decaying houses, ruin, darkness, um, broken down palaces, palaces, disobedience. There is a heat in this book. Zephaniah is a guy who is vivid in his description uh, because he's, he's, he's writing down what he sees, right? He's writing down what he hears. This is what the Lord is declaring. Everything he points in this first uh, couple of, of verses here is all about the coming judgment that is on the, the people of Judah, the two tribes down here in the southern kingdom, and uh, how this is coming to them. And here's what he ultimately says in this first part. Judgment is coming. It's very vivid. Uh, just a couple of verses. I'll utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, the rubble of, with the wicked. Uh, I will cut off mankind. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. I will cut off this place from the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. And he, I mean, he just goes on and on. I will, uh, those who bow down, I will... Uh, 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 those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear to Milcom. Those who have turned their back from the Lord, that, who do, don't seek Him anymore. This is a, uh, a very fierce, very strong-worded uh, prophecy where he says, this is, uh, it, it is the judgment that is coming from God. And here's how you know it's from God. Because he calls out where your worship lies, where you are setting your heart, as he talks about in those last uh, verses 4 through 6. He says, you have set yourself into false gods. You may say something about me with your lips once or twice a month, but I know you keep going to these other gods as well. You are, you are, you are using me and you're using them and you're, you're, you're all over the place. I want you. I want your heart. I'm a jealous God and this is not going to happen. So he, this first uh, section, the judgment today section, uh, Zephaniah is setting up and saying, this is what the Lord says. So this is going to be ugly. This is going to be, I'm going to sweep away, I'm cutting off, I'm, I'm, everything is over, it's done. There's going to be nothing left, declares the Lord. So that first section is the, the heat of where he's starting in this book about the judgment that is today. So that's the first part of this book. Then the second part of this book really begins there in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse number 7. And he goes on, uh, and in this, in this section, uh, we see how... Um, how a, the prophet does, here's what Zephaniah does. He does what only a, a prophet of the Lord can do. He brings what's coming today, this near judgment, and what's coming thousands of years from now, and he, he puts them together, and we can see this like this weaving 
of how he does this with his words. He sees these two different worlds, these two different times, and he weaves them together. We can hear, um, he, he, distinguish, he, he does not distinguish, however, in this section, I think it's another interesting point, he does not distinguish between the two comings of Jesus. You know how we talked about the, um, uh, the difference of whenever we look out over the landscape and, and you can see the top of a mountain and then you see the other top of the mountain behind it, but you don't see the valley in between it, right? That's uh, the church age, the, the, the age of the church that is in between the, the birth of Jesus and the return of Jesus wasn't seen by the prophets. None of the prophets saw that valley in between. They didn't see us today. Sometimes, and here's what's crazy, what we do I've heard tons of people do this, and, and especially whenever uh, Israel gets attacked or something happens over in the Middle East. I'll have people ask me, which chapter of Revelation are we in? Right? That's, 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 a, that's a typical question. Where are we at, Pastor? Uh, I've had some people come up and tell me what chapter they think we're in. And I'm like, that's, that's, we're probably real far off here. This is not, you can't just take, oh, this is what this says, so let's lay it over top of today. I think that we're going to talk about a couple of things today that, that may even kind of push a little bit of where I stand on some things. But um, there's a, uh, uh, what we notice is Old Testament prophets aren't talking about us. Old Testament prophets are pointing to Jesus. Everything they say is pointing to Jesus. Now they'll talk about some, some people that gather, right? The, the apocalypse, for instance, or the, the time that will, that will take, take place where God will gather the nations and then he'll rule and he wins, like he talks about that. But he's not talking about the church age. That's the Old Testament prophets are not talking about that. The, the New Testament prophecies that lead to the second coming of Christ, because the first coming of Christ has already happened. So the New Testament prophets help reveal to us a little more specifically what the end times will look like as we see them. So it's kind of like, if you can imagine these Old Testament guys seeing the, these, this mountain range, and they're seeing these two top, these two mountaintops. They see uh, the coming of Christ the first time and the coming of Christ the second time. But to them, it's the same, it's the same linear view, right? So, seeing this, so they, sometimes they don't know how far apart they are. Sometimes they think it's the same. And so they, they describe it that way. But for us, we've already, we're already on one side of those mountains. We've already seen the coming of Christ the first time. We celebrate it this time of year. So we've already seen that and experienced that, how he defeated death, hell, grave, all, all the things. The Holy Spirit came down. And now what we see in the New Testament, which we'll see uh, in, in the summer next year, whenever we get to the New Testament. Um, in fact, we'll be in August when we're in Revelation. So uh, whenever we're in the book of Revelation, what we see, a lot of the, the New Testament prophecy, even in the book of the Thessalonians, the letters of the Thessalonians and different seasons of, of that prophecy, we'll see that second mountain that, that they were talking about but we're living in the valley in between it. So Zephaniah was a, uh, uh, here he, we start to see some things where we've got to distinguish which mountain is he talking about, right? Is he talking about the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? And so um, I think we'll, uh, hopefully we'll be able to walk through this uh, pretty well. So this first, uh, in verse number seven of chapter one, he gives us just in this one verse, these two pictures. So it says, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now, there's two pictures in this, I believe. I believe it's the coming Babylonians that are going to take over. And I also believe it's the day of the Lord that we haven't seen yet. And the reason I think that is because there's about to be a little bit of a thread. And we're going to see the prophet going from today to tomorrow, from today to tomorrow, from now in front of us. And by the way, in front of us wasn't that day, right? It was, it was still years out from the time that the Babylonians actually took over because Nineveh had to fall first. There was still this uh, overcoming that had to happen. Um, and so there was this, like here in this season of our generation, 
to a generation that is coming where God's going to make it all whole. He's going to take care of everything. He's, he's, he's going to win the ultimate battle. Now, there's something about Zephaniah I didn't say, and uh, we're going to run into that here in just a few minutes, about how um, he's also, there's, there's a hint in his, in his book that is kind of speaking to the remnant that will be captured and be in Babylon. So there is a remnant of people that will be in Babylon that will be captured. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. Um, but this is where uh, these next couple of verses, verses 8 through 13, um, there is a, a clear picture of how harsh God's punishment is. Listen to this. Um, he says in verse 8, I will punish the officials and king's sons, all who array themselves for, uh, in foreign attire. He says, on that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. What he's saying in those couple of verses is those people in power, they're greedy. They're adorning themselves in foreign attire, meaning they've gone and plundered. And now they are wearing, they're wearing the riches of somebody else. So they're greedy. They're, they're thieves. They've taken away. Uh, I'm going to punish them. And the punishment is going to be harsh. It's going to be tough. It's going to be ugly. They've also got violence in their house. They've got fraud. They've got um, all kinds of problems in their house. They're lazy. They're greedy. I'm going to burn them into nothingness. He's like, I'm going to punish all of the officials and the king's sons who do this. This is going to happen. Then he gives a little bit of a uh, description from verses 10 on. Um, and here's where he talks about today. So he's gone back to today and he's talking about the coming uh, capture, captivity, uh, capture of Jerusalem. He says this, On that day, in verse 10, declares the Lord, A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traitors are no more who weigh out silver and are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are complacent. Those who stay in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So here's where um, he begins to give us the way that Jerusalem is going to be captured. This is super cool. So I began to do a little bit of research into what is the fish gate. Because I've, looked at, I've been to Jerusalem I've been uh, around, I, in fact, we walked all the way around the city. Um, we, well, we stopped and we walked and walked around different gates. Um, and there's no fish gate in Jerusalem today. So I thought, which gate is it? It's actually now what we call the current day Damascus Gate. And so the Damascus Gate, gate is up on the, um, the northern side. And so the way he talks about, uh, this is the first, first gate, first place that Babylon would come into. So when Babylon goes to take over Jerusalem, He's saying the first place that he sees, I, so I see, the, I see Zephaniah doing this. In his prophecy, he's, he's, he's hearing the Lord, and he's, he's got a map of Jerusalem in his head, right? And he's like, he knows the gates, because they, they all would at this point. Everybody in Judah would know where the gates are, right? It's like me asking you, um, hey, is, uh, where's, where's McDonald's, right? You could tell me where McDonald's is. You can kind of see almost a map of 321, and you would say, oh, well, it's down here, it's over here, here it is, here it is, here it is. And so you can kind of see a picture in your head whenever you think about one of these places. So here's what Zephaniah does. He's looking at Jerusalem, and he begins to see in order what is about to happen. So he talks about first the Damascus gate, the fish gate. That's where the Babylonians would come in first. Then his eyes go to what's called the second quarter. This is the high place that's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, 
uh, chapter 22, there's a prophetess that lived there. Her name was uh, Haluda, and her, uh, where she lived was the second quarter in Jerusalem. And so this is the next place that the capture, that the capture is going to take place. It's important. I'd love to jump in and like really do a study on that and tell you why that matters more. But um, ultimately, it's a, it's, a, it's a cool experience how that's where in, in 2 Kings, people went there to understand more about God. And now it's the second place taken over. Like it's the second spot that's going to end up being taken. And so the, the first gate, the first breach is at that fish gate, that Damascus gate uh, by the Babylon, Babylonians. Then uh, the next place they go is that high place where people once went to kind of get a word from God. And now God's saying, I'm not giving you a word anymore. I'm, I'm, as soon as they get in the city, that's the first place they're taken. That's the first spot as soon as they break into the gate. They're going to take over that so that you know I'm not talking to you right now. I, we're, we're broken in our relationship. Then he goes on in these next few verses talking about how then the disaster is going to take over Zion, Moriah, Opiel, the, the, the enemy would come into the city. And here's where if, if, we, if we looked at a map of the city, I tried to find a map of this and it was hard to find. Nobody's really done a map of this real well. Um, but if you look at it, here's what Zephaniah is seeing. They come into this gate. They go and take over this spot where the high place is, where the, the second quarter is. And then they go deeper and deeper into the city. Every, every place he, he names, they're going deeper and deeper into the city. So much so they even go to uh, the place that is the, the place of mortar, the hollow mortar. This is where um, the Phoenician merchants would come and do their business, which is why it even says in there um, that, uh, that, that uh, the silver and gold, the traders are no more. Those who weigh out silver and gold are cut off. This is, a, this is what's going to happen. Then God's going to search Jerusalem and anybody who's teetering saying, I don't know about the Lord. I'm not really sure about this. I don't, I don't know. My allegiance isn't to him. My allegiance is to nobody. Have you ever, do you realize that today, in our culture today, they were doing surveys, and there was a survey done a few years ago, I think it was back in 2019, uh, that people today most identify with non-religious. It's called complacency, is what it's called. It's exactly what happened in Jerusalem, where the people of God say, I don't know if God's going to do good, I don't know if God's going to do bad, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not on either side. And God says, that's not okay. Not okay. He, he says, I'm going to wipe out all that. I'm going to search them and I'm going to punish the men who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or he will do good. I don't know. It's not, I'm not sure. Nor, he, he's not doing anything. It's not God. I don't know what it is. That's complacency. And God says, I'm not going to have it in my city with my people. You better know I'm God and I love you and I'm going to take care of you. And I am holy and wrath is coming. Um, there, there, again, this is, this is the way that, that Jerusalem ended up being captured. There's not another prophet that talked about in more detail the, the path that was taken. So I, I think it's kind of cool. It's great for us to know how this, uh, how this takes place. And that Zephaniah is the one that, uh, that gave it to us. He's the one that showed us um, just how the path would be taken. Um, in uh, the next few verses, in verses 14 down through 18, uh, he is, again, this is where the prophet takes this moment from that day and stretches it to the great day of the Lord again. Uh, he speaks in verse number 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of great ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. Um, typically, anytime in Scripture we see a day of wrath, we know that as the second mountain, right? So we're, we're, on the, on the, the, we're in the valley past the mountain of Jesus coming, and so now we're looking into the one where he is coming back. 
And the day of wrath is, is long standing out. And this is where um, we have the whole Bible, we have the whole Scripture. We know that the day of wrath is whenever God's going to pour out His wrath on all mankind. Now, here's how that happens, I believe. Now, I'm not, there's, there's different eschatological views of what, uh, what the, the second coming of Christ looks like, what the, uh, what the true day of wrath is, when that falls on a timeline. Uh, I, think, I think my timeline's right, otherwise I wouldn't think it, right? <laughs> if I thought it was right, if I'm like, oh, I think mine's wrong, I probably would believe something else. Um, but I believe that there's a time where, uh, where God will hand over the earth to uh, mankind, and I think we're experiencing that, and then there'll be a day where they'll hand them over to Satan, and then there's a day where the hardening of hearts happens, where, where there's a time where no one else will accept Christ. No one else will say, because their hearts have become too hardened. God's, the day of grace will be over, right? And so there's a day when that comes. That day, the, when the day of grace is over, the day of wrath is next. Because right now, God is still showing grace by allowing people to accept Him as, as Savior. That He is allowing people, anybody that would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says that. I can tell you, anyone I'm not going to tell you that, that God has said from the beginning of time that uh, this, you know, I've heard it said before that this, this view, uh, uh, Calvinism view, is a view that, um, <laughs> there's a, a pretty funny thing, I have a really close friend that's a, a Calvinist, and he says to me, he says, you know, here's the problem, everybody agrees with it until you say the word Calvinism, and I was like, I don't think that's necessarily the truth, um, but in his, in his view, he, you know, he's, he's made the statement to me before that um, that if a, if a baby dies, that that baby, we don't know if that baby's in heaven or hell. I was like, I'm telling you, God, if that baby didn't have a chance to have the conscious effort to, to accept Jesus, that baby's in heaven. Like, I, that's my belief. I can base some scripture for you to show you that. Um, he believes that if that baby was never destined to be a Christian, then they were not going to be in heaven. And so I disagree with that, strongly disagree with that. But in this, um, in, in what happens here, uh, I believe that there's a day coming where there is a, when the day of grace is over, there is no more choice because people have hardened their hearts in such rebellion, they will not choose Jesus. So that's the day of wrath. And the day of wrath is whenever God pours out his holy wrath on all of those who did not accept him as Savior. And the good news is I have accepted him as my Savior. I, I accepted this grace because I'm going to tell you, once you, once you hear this grace, it's, it's too good to ignore. It's so, so good. And so I, I know that that day is coming. And then verse, down to verse number 18, what we hear, because uh, then he talks about uh, in verse 16, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. Um, and then as he goes, he distresses on mankind. This is going to be harsh. And Zephaniah, again, is not talking about the, the uh, siege of Jerusalem at this point. He's talking about a day that is far, far away. Even verse 18, he says, neither silver nor gold shall be delivered to them. They're going to be wiped out. And then he says in verse number, the last part of verse 8, for a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. He's talking about that day that, uh, that the day of wrath is going to, his holy wrath, when his holy wrath burns, nothing is not consumed by it. He's going to make a full and utter end, a sudden end. Nobody they didn't realize it's here. They didn't realize it's coming because his, his wrath is so powerful and so incredible. Talks about their blood being poured out. Again, very, very hot reading here. If you read through this, I, I encourage you to go and read chapter, chapter 1 and into chapter 2. and th Go read this book and just see if, if it doesn't like scare you just a little bit. Because <laughs> it is some very, very strong, strong language. 
Um, and then, then what we see as we keep going into chapter 2, uh, his, the way that he, uh, he shares these next few, this next section, uh, I like the next couple of verses, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, uh, what we find is he does, he does what a lot of the prophets do. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. I told you a minute ago that uh, I believe that Zephaniah's prophecy here was written also for that remnant that would be faithful. And here's why I believe that. Because the way he says this, first off, I love how prophets, when they see the coming wrath of the Lord, when they see how holy God is, their phrase is almost always, please turn back to the Lord. (laughs) Seek Him. Do whatever you can. Repent, turn from your ways, and seek the Lord. Because a man of God that sees God and recognizes God, that's going to be on his heart. If you ever, ever, ever hear a preacher say, keep living like you're living, it'll be okay. I'm I'm telling you something, they don't know God. They don't. If if you ever hear a man of God who has been in the presence of God, I guarantee you there's some point in his conversation with you that he's going to say, listen, we got to get better. Man, we gotta, we got to turn our eyes back on him again. We've, we've slipped away. And you may say, slipped away? You had a bad thought about somebody. And he's like, I know. And I'm telling you, that bad thought about somebody set me out of my relationship, my, my holy relationship with God. So I want to be sure that I'm connecting back with him. Not that you can ever lose your salvation, but you can sure, away, sure drift away from the relationship. You can sure try to separate yourself from God. Now, nothing can separate us from the love that he has for us. But we can turn our gaze away and we're no longer in close relationship. So Zephaniah does the same thing that a good man of God would do and say, please turn back, please turn back. And he says in verse 3, those who seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This is where I believe there's a word to the remnant that would be captured. I know that there are people that were captured in, and that, that were of the remnant that ended up coming back to the land that God gave them, right? So they were in uh, captivity in Babylon, for a number of years. And we know in that captivity time, we know of some guys in that captivity time that ended up uh, doing what's right. Ezekiel was one of those guys. Daniel was one of those guys. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, remember those guys? Those guys were ones that still were, were, and God even poured out favor on them. Those guys all ended up in in prominent, prominent positions, uh, places that, and it was, and they ended up being those who reformed King Nebuchadnezzar. They ended up uh, giving God's word to these guys, and uh, really had some incredible, uh, incredible stories. And we know that because they thrived even in captivity. Because I believe, where it says in verse three, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord. They weren't ones that had to experience um, just straight slavery. They got to experience a little bit of of life and favor within that because I believe those guys were humble. I believe they sought humility. I believe they sought righteousness. Um, I believe that they did what verse 3 says to do. And that tells us even in our bad situation, if we are seeking righteousness and seeking humility, God can still give us life and hope even if we're in slavery, even if we're in a hard marriage, even if we're in a hard family, even if we're in a tough spot all around us, God can tell us, God tells us multiple times, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps God will still honor and bless that in your life. And he does in these guys specifically. Um, we, we do see in, uh, uh, he calls, 
in this, in this passage here, verse number one of chapter two, he calls them shameless, a shameless nation. That word shameless, uh, if, you, if you look it up in that uh, original language, it means greedy for worthless things with no regard for how dumb you look doing it. That's the best description I can give. So he's saying, you're, you're running after these things, and the shameless part of it is, you're running after things that are less, and p- if people were to look at you and see, so if I had a, a handful of gold and a handful of rice, and I held them out, and you all, and, and you all got lined up, and everybody took some, took some rice, and you all passed up the gold, there's somebody in the room that's going to say, this looks dumb. This looks dumb. And here's what, here's what this word basically means. It means you don't even care how dumb you look because the rice looks so appealing to you. That's what, that's what it gives us. So he's saying this nation is so shameless. Why is it so shameless? Because you have the presence of Almighty God you could be running to, and instead you're running to these useless things, and you think it's the best. That's how, that's how shameless this nation has become. I want you to think about how shameless does the, the people of God have to look have to be in order to run to these awful, awful things. And so we, we see as he keeps going, uh, the next couple of verses, he, he, I mean, he's wearing out Judah. He's saying, listen, this is not, not good. Then he says in verses 4 through verse 15 of chapter 2, we see the prophet doing uh, kind of the same type of the scene that he did with Jerusalem earlier. You know how he saw kind of a map of Jerusalem? And he saw uh, how, how the captivity was going to come, how the invasion was going to come. Now he sees in the next part here about how the enemies are going to uh, respond and react. And he looks, if you look at a Bible map, a geographical map, you can watch and see what the prophet's doing. First, he, he's, lo- he's, he's looking into the, the people of Judah and the city. So he first looks to the west. Okay, so he first gazes over to the west. Um, in chapter 4, for Gaza shall be deserted. And so he's looking over here, and then he, uh, he looks at the west to the place of the, Phil- the Philistines. Then he goes to the east, to the people of Moab and Ammon. Then he looks to the south, down to Ethiopia, which is a, a long way, long way down. Um, that's even south of Egypt, um, which Egypt is a place that keeps coming up in prophecy, by the way. This is where uh, I will say that Egypt plays a part in the, in the, in the, the final days, um, and Egypt plays a part by a treaty that they're going to end up signing. And the treaty may not be a physical treaty, but the treaty is an agreement with um, Gog and Magog, which is Russia. Uh, and there's going to be some, some things coming into Israel, and Egypt's going to be a part of that. We see that in Bible prophecy. But what Zephaniah is doing is even looking past down further south of Egypt into Ethiopia. Then uh, we see, and, and they again, Egypt keeps showing up. Ethiopia uh, even kind of is around that, that scene. Uh, then the prophet looks to the north, to Nineveh, which is not yet fallen, but about to fall. Um, and, uh, and, and I just want to say here, you know, I talk about Nineveh a lot. I talk about how Nineveh is the great city that falls. There is no way I could overestimate how big of a deal Nineveh was. Nineveh was the most powerful, the most fortified, the strongest city. This was the last thing that anybody could imagine falling. This would be like us saying that um, the most powerful uh, nation in the world was about to be defeated by a small nation. It's, it's, it's just unheard of. You're like, well, they have more manpa- we have more manpower, we have more strength, we have more weaponry, more money, more whatever. This, that's how big Nineveh was, the strongest, powerful, wealthiest, most incredible city, fortified so deep, the, the walls uh, as tall as our cross that sits in the parking lot, as wide as, as the interstate nearly. I mean, we're talking massive, massive city, strong. 
And so when we hear Nineveh falling, we need to take notice. This is a big deal. It, people are, are, are just, they're thinking it's crazy. Last thing anyone could even assume on the radar. Um, and then the, as he goes through that in, in chapter number two, the final parts of chapter number two, that's in verse 15, the exuculent city uh, that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am the one who is no one else. What a desolation she has become a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. This is when Nineveh falls, and there is a, uh, and again, this hasn't happened yet, but we know based on our study uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, when Nahum talks about it, this will be a city that nobody will remember anymore. And so Zephaniah agrees with that, says it right before it happens, by the way. It's about to happen soon. Um, and then he, he goes on uh, in chapter 3, uh, and he starts in these first parts of chapter 3. I want to just mention uh, verses 1 through 8 is still, still in my, the second part of like the, the judgment that's coming. Um, is, uh, he looks now at the capital city of Jerusalem, of Judah, the capital city, Jerusalem, of Judah. And uh, so Jerusalem is what's in view now again, and he, he looks into them, gives them warnings of the wars that are coming. He gives some woes. Uh, and he talks about how in this section, in these first eight verses, Jerusalem has no regard for God's presence anymore. They have no response for God's patience. You know, God is so long-suffering with this, with this people. He's just kept, I mean, it's, it's almost like if you, we're reading through this. I feel like we've been on this for a month and a half, reading about all these prophets that showed up that kept saying, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I'm like... At this point, I'm thinking, God, how patient are you? And he says, more patient than you'll ever understand, Anthony. <laughs> I'm patient. And, and, and Judah, the nation of Judah, had no response for any of that patience. They didn't, they didn't thank him for it. They didn't, they didn't even acknowledge that he was patient. They had no repentance, even though God kept pursuing them. He kept on pursuing them, kept on pursuing them, and they were not turning back. And then I, I hate how they have no, um, no vision for God's purposes or God's plans. Um, so now, in these first eight verses, we see God will make a public spectacle of them. Um, he says in verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate uh, without a man, without an inhabitant. And then he says in verse 7, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off. But... All the more eager were they to make their deeds corrupt. So this is, this is how far and how bad it's gotten in Jerusalem. God's, God's making a display of everybody. And he's saying, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And Jerusalem's like, nah, we'll just keep going where we're at. We'll just keep sliding further and further away from your, from your favor. And God will not have it. Um, verses 9 through, the, through verses 10 kind of sets into a third section for us. So as we look into this third section, um, we'll see a couple of things happen. This is when uh, the nations change. This is all the people. This is the, the coming day that is beautiful and it will be wonderful. There's still some, some difficulty that we see, but there is some joy and some restoration that happens. Uh, verse number nine is one that I want to I land on for just a second. It says, for, the, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, and all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, there's a, uh, there's a little bit of, of differing opinions on what this exactly means. So I did a little bit of research. I love researching. I love studying. 
Um, that word there, uh, change the, peach of, the speech of all peoples. Uh, your translation may say of all people um, or a people, uh, but the, the root is a, a plural form that is not just, it's a, it's a kinsman, but not just a single national kinsman. So I believe, I have, I have a hunch, okay, this is, this is, my, this is your pastor's thought in this. Um, if the Lord con- convinces me otherwise or, or changes my heart in this uh, at some point, I'll let you know he does. But um, I believe this verse points to the day of the Lord that, uh, that, that Jews and Gentiles get saved. Okay, I, I believe that. And, and here's why I believe that. Because it's the same term, pure speech, is the same term that a lip, a lip converted to holy. If you remember Isaiah, whenever he met the Lord, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. We're, we're all unclean. And God comes and blesses his lips to, uh, to speak holy things. That's what he blesses his lips to do. There's a conversion that happens here, and it's not, and here's the, the beauty of this. Here's one of the reasons I think I cling to this hope. It's not just for the Jews. It's for all of us. It's for each of us. He's going to call all peoples, and he's going to purify them, and he's going to make them holy. Now, there's, cause there, And the reason I think that here is because there's, a, there's a, a, a section coming where he's talking specifically to Zion, specifically to the people of the Jewish nation. But here, he doesn't mention the Jewish nation. He talks about all peoples that will come together under the, under the beautiful restoration that God will bring to people. Jesus, right? It's, it, he sent his son Jesus to die so that we can be purified, so that we can be made holy. Um, and because and, what happens is whenever we get converted, uh, we call again, it says, because they, they will call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. I, there's, a, there's a section, there's a little part of me that is, that is thinking, and I, I can't, I didn't find any commentator that agreed with this part, but that, a, um, that we are serving the Lord together with one accord, Christians, believers. Um, I, I don't know that this is necessarily the church age. I, I want to think it is, but I can't, I don't have any, any, any proof of that. Uh, but through that, I, I do know this. <clears throat> there is also, most commentators, most theologians that are way smarter than me believe, this is what, uh, when Jesus was talking about, there will be a day where uh, true worshipers will worship the, God, the Lord in one accord with spirit, in spirit and in truth. Um, this is where there's a day coming where this prophet is looking and seeing all of the nations gathered together that have been redeemed by him, the redeemed people, worshiping the Lord in, in purity, in, in what's happening in that day. We're, we've not come to that day yet. Right? We, we can't all agree on everything. We can't all agree on anything. And so we, we get to this place where we're all going to agree in one accord with a one heart that this God is amazing. He then goes and explains a little bit of uh, where he's at, uh, where, the, where the places are in verse 10. Then verse 11 through 13, we see Israel repenting. Listen to what happens uh, in verses uh, 11 through verse 13. It says, On that day you shall, you shall um, not be put to shame, because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So there's going to be a repentance that happens, right? And then after the repentance happens, and, and even verse 12, I will leave you in the midst of your people, humble and lowly, that they will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And then verse 13, we see they go from uh, uh, humility to we see some holiness. Listen to verse 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, they, uh, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they will gaze and lie down, and none will make them afraid. What he says in verse 13 is, in verses 11 and 12, we see a humility that's happening in Israel. They're going to be humbled, and then we see they're going to be holy. They're going to be set apart. 
That's verse 13 says there's not going to be any of these any of these things in the world that you see now is not going to be here anymore because they're set apart. Their tongue is now holy. They are now going to speak things that are good and life-giving. So we see Israel taken to this place of, of humbling themselves, being humbled by God, and then being holy, being set apart by God. Then we see verses 14 and 15. This is fantastic. We see rejoicing. This is a worship pastor section right here uh, in, in uh, Zephaniah 3 verses 14 and 15, uh, they listen, it says, it says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoicing, exulting with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. There's this joy that just comes bursting forth. It's an explosion. Then in verse 15, listen to verse 15. This is good too. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away from, uh, cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, that's a capital K, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never fear evil again. That is an incredible gospel message. He says, listen, once you receive the king of Israel, once you receive that king, then never will you fear again. That is a powerful, powerful position in place. And we see the way this book ends, verses 16 through 20, is uh, it's all focused on the Redeemer. And let me just tell you, I, I my, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and I know I say that too much. I need to like figure out really what my favorite is. Um, the, uh, in verse 17, this is a, uh, I learned this when I was a, when I was a teenager. I read, this, I read this verse in some devotional book I had. I think I still have it even. Um, it may have been like top 100 devotions verses or something. And it was, the, the devotional was, um, was kind of garbagey because like the, the little things that went with it didn't make any sense. But this verse was in one and I remember and it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The, the way that devotional, I'll never forget, I was 16 or 17 years old, and I, when I was reading it, the, Bible, the, the devotional writer said, Have you ever thought about God singing over you? And I thought, Well, that's, that's weird. You know, God, God's singing over me. He's like, The Bible says it does. And there's a, something pretty beautiful about this, because what we see in verse 17 is that God is mighty, He's here, He's strong, He's gentle, He's caring, and He's happy. He's happy. Why is He happy? Not because I did anything, but because the King of Israel came and redeemed me. And now I'm in His family. It is a love beyond anything we can understand. It's a love that is, I, I cannot imagine... And, you know, I've tried to think about this. If, my, if one of my daughters was crazy rebellious and just ran away and, and, and did all these things to hurt my name and did all these things to damage me and my relationship with her, and if they did all these things, and the day that she decided to come back, would I take her back? And I mean, I'm her, of course I would. I'm her dad, and I love her. And I was there for her whenever she couldn't take care of herself. And I, I've been there for them, and, I, and I've prayed for them, and I've lifted them up. And I thought about how happy I would be. I prayed for so many families that had a, a, a son or a daughter that had um, been a prodigal, right, that's gone away. Prayed for so many of them. And, and some had the privilege to watch as that son or daughter came back home. And I'd never seen happiness in a parent as to that moment. You know, we read the story of the prodigal son, and the, the dad is like, as soon as, soon as son shows back up, it's, we're partying. I'm so happy. I read this verse and I see that he is in our midst. He's mighty who will save, rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us by his love. We get stressed out. You know, I have one of my daughters struggles pretty bad with anxiety. 
And uh, one, of the, one of the things that works the best when she gets really, really stressed out is whenever she hugs me for a long time. I just, I just hold her. And when I hold her, she'll just, the crying and the shaking and all that just kind of slows down. And she gets quiet. I'm reading, listen, when I get stressed out, he quiets me with his love. When I'm all nervous about something, if I remember this, I am loved by God. It doesn't matter what people say about me. It doesn't matter how people think I am or who people think I am. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I don't have to get anxious anymore. I can be quieted by his love. I, I love, 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 love this, this passage. The next couple of verses, he talks about how he will help them. He will gather them. He will transform them into a praising heart. He's going to save them. He's going to glorify them, being Israel specifically for that, because he will glorify them. Uh, and he will make good on his word. Verse 20, at, the, at that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all of the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That is his word, and he is going to keep it. Um, whenever we, uh, we think about the book of Zephaniah, there's a lot here to unpack. There's a lot here to look at. Um, but what I know is that he was a man speaking to people with hardened hearts. And it doesn't take long to think about the culture that we live in today. It feels like everybody's got their hearts already hardened. Nobody shows up on social media with a political statement to, be, to have their mind changed. Nobody. They're coming to make sure you understand where, they're, where they stand. They, they want to make sure that you know this is where I stand and I'm trying to change your mind. That's why I always say, if you ever get in an argument with somebody over social media, just stop, just stop. And you may say, well, they're wrong. Maybe. I, it, who cares? Let God quiet you with his love. Let God calm you with his love. Just think about God's love for you. When you do that, it will, it will, you'll, you'll be amazed how many, how many people stop hating you so bad? <laughs> stop hating your decision so bad. Stop hating your position so bad. Zephaniah is dealing with the people that were hardened hearts with rebellious and that were running after lesser things and God was going to punish them. So a couple of things to be reminded of as we are each week. God doesn't lose. And um, whoever is on the other side of God loses it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're the wealthiest person ever to live. If you're not for God, you're against him. And if you're against him, you lose. You lose. Zephaniah is very clear in the, in the, the as quoted, the hottest book in the Old Testament. He is explaining God is going to win. He does not lose. He does not go back on his word. He's going to win and destroy and, and, and pour all this judgment out on Jerusalem. But then at the last verse, he's also going to take that same people that he destroys in this place. There's a remnant that's going to be. There's a faithful line that shows up. And the line of David is still good. And that line of David is going to end up being the king of Israel. And when the king of Israel shows up, he's going to restore everything back to himself. And he's going to back, go back to exalting the same nation that rebelled against him. Because God doesn't go back on his word. We, I can put this in the bank. No one is going to happen. God is not going to lose. And as Zephaniah reminds us, he's holy, he's got wrath. So please, 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 as each of them say each time, turn back to him. Just turn back to him. Get closer with him today than you were yesterday, and you will not regret it. Let's pray.